This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and I am so excited to meet Laura Worrell today. This book, Sweet, Soft, Plenty Rhythm, you are going to be hearing so much about this book this fall. It is fabulous. And I'm going to ask Laura to set it up for us because this cast and these stories, and there's so much to talk about, though we are staying spoiler-free in this conversation. Oh, good. Good to hear. Thank you so much. I am thrilled to be here. Really excited to be here. Um, so happy to share the book with you. So, um, okay, Sweet Soft Plenty Rhythm uh, follows the women in a Playboy jazz musician's life. So his name is Circus Palmer. He refuses to be tied down. Um, so when his most beloved bedmate, Maggie, tells him she's pregnant, he abandons her and goes off back into his life. They're in Miami. So they go, he goes back to Boston where he's from and where the book takes place to connect or reconnect with former lovers, possibly new lovers, women and females who have been in his life. So the idea here is that he's sort of trying to avoid this responsibility and sort of sets off this chain of reactions with these women. But rather than focusing on him, we're turning the tables. We're focusing on the women. So each chapter is told from a different woman's perspective. Like I said, he's got some former lovers that he's reconnecting with. He's got an ex-wife. He's got a daughter. And of course, the woman who's pregnant. So the book kind of invites these women to uh, potentially liberate themselves from a relationship that is challenging. So are they going to do it? Is Circus going to meet his responsibilities? That's the adventure you are embarking upon if you choose to read this book. We need to start with the voices of all of these characters because who it. showed up first for you? You know, Circus, of course, uh, showed up first. But the very first woman to show up was actually Josephine, who is appears sporadically throughout the book. You're going to see her. She's going to call him. She's going to text him. And then she shows up near the end. And she came to me first because... I was actually, and this might be one of your questions, so I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna answer it now. Um, I was involved with a musician, and right. he was not particularly committal, to say the very least. And so it got me thinking about these types of relationships that are so common, that are so often written about. We've got Don Juan, we've got Casanova. The the story of the womanizer is as old as as literature. And I wanted to take another look at it because I feel very often when these stories are told, they're told from his perspective, right? The womanizer's perspective. Why is he making these decisions and interacting with women this way? Will he evolve? I wanted to tell the women's stories. And Josephine came to me and I, and I should say for the sake of my <laughs> reputation, I am not Josephine, but I was feeling some pretty intense emotions at the moment that I thought of writing this story. It started as, as just a story about her as she's kind of in an extreme way dealing with the frustration of being involved with someone who is not seeing her humanity. Um, and so that's where the story began. And then it really pulled out from there. All kinds of women started coming into my imagination, um, all kinds of women, 
that I've known in my life or that I see represented on television shows and, and books and stories that I wanted to give a voice. So Josephine was first. She was fun to write. She's extreme. She's intense. And she has been pushed to the brink. Um, and so she was very fun to write. She's also a great sort of introduction to the way you write about love and loneliness and mm -hmm. how powerful loneliness can be for anyone at any point. And that includes Circus. He doesn't really know quite how lonely he is, but certainly the women and Josephine, ooh, she's in it. She is in it. And the loneliness is palpable. Yes. And it's a great, it is a really satisfying riff. Pardon the musical. No, please. Bring really on. Satisfying. I love it. Yeah. Well, and you know, I think that's a major part of this book. It, it really was one of the drivers to writing it. Not only do you experience loneliness when you are literally alone and not seeing anyone, but there's a unique, particularly agonizing loneliness that comes when you are involved with somebody and you are emotionally attached, especially if you're in love. And I think Josephine is. And that person comes and goes. It is excruciating when they are gone and you're longing for them and you don't know where you stand. You don't know what they're doing. You don't know who they're doing it with. You don't know how they feel about you. And you have this sort of back and forth push and pull. Here are some drops of love and intimacy and touch. And then I'm gone. It's a really particular type of loneliness that I think all of these women experience, that I think a lot of women and anybody who has ever been involved, and unfortunately, there are lots of us who have been involved with people who are just not showing up for us in the ways we would like them to, and in fact, that we're showing up for them. So loneliness is definitely um, one of the many kind of tunes being played here. We'll just go full... Let's we just should. go for all of the, as many. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's do, do it. it. Let's do it. <laughs> Pia, who mm -hmm. is Circus's ex-wife, um, mm -hmm. she's the perfect example of what you're describing, of a yes. woman who is lonely in her relationship. And I have to tell you, I had a lot of challenges with Pia. I understand the role she plays in the book, not just as a character, not just as Circus's ex and Coco's mom. Coco is another character in the book. Mm-hmm. But wow, did you bring her to life because she was making me itch. There's mm -hmm. a lot. Pia makes some bad decisions. Pia has mm -hmm. a mom who is a piece of work. Mm -hmm. Pia, I can't tell if Pia, well, I, I, I definitely have an opinion on this. I shouldn't <laughs> say I can't tell. Um, Pia is not a great mom, but she is wildly in love with circus and she can't actually really let go. And this is a big piece of the story because Coco is one of the great teenage Mm -hmm. voices I've, in, I've experienced on the page in a really long time. That's so, great. I'm glad to hear that. Can we talk about this family unit for a second? Because sure. even if they're not together and mm -hmm. we're, we're going to let readers discover what happens when, um, <clears throat> shall we say, Circus brings a friend home. Yes. yes. <laughs> <Which> <laughs> He's such me, a fun guy. Oh, yeah. you had me barking. I was laughing so hard. I really, like, yeah. that moment I was like, wow. Oh, I'm so oh, glad. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Went there. But let's talk about them as a unit because the story sure. does still swirl around them. They're, they are not actually the entire piece of right. the story. So the first thing I'll say about Pia, long, long ago, more than mm -hmm. a decade, maybe even 20 years ago, I was reading a film review 
Um, I don't remember the film. I don't remember the actor or the character. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But the reviewer said, this is a character who Mm -hmm. is smart enough to know that she should want more out of life, but not smart enough to know what it is. Now, I'm not talking about Pia's intelligence, but I like the idea of a character who has a sense that my life should be more than this, but I don't know myself well enough to know what that life would look like, let alone how to go about getting it, getting that. So that's where she falls for me. And you can extend that to her love life, right? She knows that she should be experiencing more than she is or has been in her life with circus, but she doesn't know how to get it. And she doesn't know probably what it feels like. So her story in my mind is that she was a very young woman. He's a few years older than her when they met. He's a sexy, charismatic jazz musician, totally out of her experience, Mm -hmm, right, mm -hmm. of of life. And he gravitates toward her because same idea. These are two people who don't fall on each other's radar often. I think that in the beginning, he saw her as out of his league, right? He's, He's one of those. And I was like this. I knew a lot of people like this were young, awkward kids. We find an art. That's where we uh, identify ourselves and express mm-hmm. ourselves. And for some of us, or at least for circus, wow, it, I started getting sexy playing this trumpet, right? So he sort of grew up re- thinking, I don't, I don't have access to women like Pia. And then he gets a woman like Pia. But as I said, for her, I don't think she really knew who she was. And I think she enamored of him in the way a lot of people are enamored by the more dynamic, potentially more creative, more exciting partners that they're involved with. And so once that person starts pulling away and you're in this, you know, you're no longer in their orbit and you're just in the cold, again, that's lonely. Again, and and this is what Pia is invited to do. What I wanted to invite her to do is start looking inward. Who are you? What are you going to do without this guy? And she goes through a journey to figure that out. A lot of people, my mom, for example, do not like Pia. People don't like Pia. And I understand that. I also feel like it was my responsibility and my pleasure to try to figure out what's going on with her. And she makes decisions throughout the novel that are not good. She makes decisions that people will be uh, very offended by. But I wanted to make sure I found a way that it made sense for her. I hope it it did. But again, actually with all of these women, I sort of um, subscribe to the idea as a writer that you chase your characters up a tree and you put wolves and coyotes and dogs and thunderstorms, everything you possibly can until they Mm. can find a way to get down that tree. And yeah, I put Pia through the ringer. Again, one of the things I want to do with these characters is is invite them to liberate themselves from these situations. Mm -hmm. They don't all do, but that's what I wanted to uh, invite her to do. The thing that I love too is as much as she drove me sort of around the bend with a couple of choices that she made, Mm-hmm. At the same time, I loved the fact that I was having such a response to her because that tells me the character is three-dimensional and that tells me mm-hmm. that the character is living and breathing and doing right. the thing. Odessa and Maggie, who we're going to come to in a second, mm-hmm. I, I love those women. Mm-hmm. I, I hands down love those women. Peach, mm-hmm. I think, is 
terrific, terrific character. But Pia, because she was sort of picking at my last nerve a little bit, yeah, <laughs> um, that's when I knew I was in it hard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, you could have gone a couple of different ways with her, and you were just like, nope, this is who she is. Yeah. <laughs> this is who she is. She's not a saint. She's not a sinner. She's Pia. Right. And I think yeah. that's really important because women aren't always, even in 2022, yes, we're mm-hmm. going to have a version of this conversation because this conversation doesn't seem to stop. Right. Is that women are still likable or not likable or the, yeah, really, we're still having this conversation. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. And yes. we are. And yeah. we are. And I can see a lot of people saying, including your mom, saying, mm-hmm. ooh. Right. I don't need to like a character to be in their orbit. I need right. to be in their orbit because it's in service of the story. Yes. I feel exactly the same way. Mm-hmm. And when I teach creative writing, when I teach mm-hmm. fiction, um, especially at the college level, students are often afraid to present characters who are unlikable, who are unrelatable. And I always tell them that doesn't matter, at least not in my class. What matters is that the characters are compelling, that your reader wants to know what happens to them next, that they are emotionally invested might mean that they love the character, that they have a crush on the character, that they relate. It could also mean that they're being driven up a wall by the character. And to me, I felt like it would be dishonest and uninteresting if all of these women were great and kind and honest and making pure decisions and that Circus was just a jerk. That's not how things work. Mm -mm. There's a reason that any human being continues to engage in any kind of involvement or situation that hurts them, right? And it is dishonest to put any of these women into that situation and not demonstrate in some way, here's where they're complicated, here's where they're dark, here's where they're a little messy. Um, Of course, there's got to be a little bit of that, right? Um, To Hang out with a guy who, like I said, is not loving you, maybe even liking you, definitely not respecting you in the way that you you want. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that Josephine was sort of the first character to show up after Circus because the first line on my set of notes here for our conversation starts with a line from Josephine. And it's, the longer Circus stayed away, the deeper love dug in. Mm-hmm. And it's clear that she's... You drove her up a tree with this man. <laughs> you right, completely right, drove her up a tree with right. this man. But then the note I have right after it is a line from Circus that actually comes up a little earlier in the book. But he says, you can blame me, but you must like how it feels. Mm-hmm. And those two lines for me, regardless of who the women are or the circumstance, because each set of circumstances is obviously different. Mm-hmm. But wow. I mean, even his kid, even Coco. Mm-hmm. 14 year old, 15 year old Coco, and wow, anyone who remembers being 14 and 15. Yes. Yowza, you're mm-hmm. figuring out how to be separate from your parents, and yet right. you really want your parents. And that's that whole dance between being a kid, right. being a teenager, and wow, it's messy. And right. here she is with a dad who really doesn't know how to dad, mm-hmm. who's actually completely freaked out that he's about to have another child. I mean, right. all of it. Right. All of it. Yes. They're completely, and yet it comes back to needing love, wanting love, not knowing how to give love, and not mm-hmm. knowing how to receive it. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the conversation we don't have enough of, is not knowing how to receive love. 
That's how I feel. And and I love that you picked out those two lines. I think those are the two lines to pick out. That's the call and the response, right? You're hurting me, but I, I my love is getting deeper each time. And the other person saying, well, you must like it because you're still here, right? And I imagine, you know, just like with the women, I had to make sure that Circus is a compelling character. Right. I mean, for sure, there will be people who read this and say, I don't know why they're sticking around this guy. He's, I, I would have walked away as soon as he approached, right? For sure, that's the case. But I wanted to also make sure that it made sense why he was so attractive to these women. But I also, to my mind, thought, because a lot of people who are like circus do this, to his mind, I'm telling you who I am. I've told you what you can expect. I'm showing you who I am. And if you're going to keep showing up, you're going to have to recognize that this is what you're going to get. So I'm not saying, I'm not justifying that. Right. But I'm I'm saying this is how he justifies it to himself. And so I, I feel like, you know, getting into to Coco, uh, Coco was actually sort of a, a later arrival to the oh. overall story. Yeah. And it was so wonderful when she came. I was the most excited when she when she emerged. I did not expect you to say that because she feels yeah. like she's absolutely a driver, especially yes. if you contrast Pia and Maggie, who is mm-hmm. going to be the mother of the second child. Mm-hmm. Wow. Talk about two separate women orbiting the same guy. Yes, right. but Maggie's kind of like, eh. Right. And Coco, though, I mean, this is the kid where Circus says to Maggie, I have a kid. She doesn't talk to me. I don't know how to do this. Why are you Why are you expecting me to do something I've already failed miserably at? And that's not the only reason, right? That's a wonderful excuse, right? I can't. I can't be a father to your child. I'm doing a bad job with this other one. This book has been through, you know, bringing it to the craft level. It evolved a lot. In the beginning, I wasn't really thinking about him having a child. Pia actually arose before Coco did. Um, And then I thought, you know, I think he he needs a child. I think that that would um, add dimension to his character. I think it would add dimension to the story. And at first I thought that he had a son, but that felt cliche. It felt like there are too many directions to go that are obvious and maybe not particularly interesting. And then what actually happened, um, and this is not spoiling anything, is um, the Boston Marathon bombing. I was living in Boston when that happened. There were girls who got a crush on that bomber, the younger bomber. Um, the one actually who's still who's still in prison. And I thought, oh my gosh, he's got a daughter. Circus has a daughter. She came alive. I, I wrote that chapter. Um, the oh, first, yeah, wow. yeah. That was okay. my first. That I don't know how much we want to talk about it because it sort of happens near the end. Um, it's a pivotal moment for Coco. It was the first chapter and it came quickly. I was visiting mm-hmm. a friend in San Diego. She had to work during the day. I think I wrote it in like two days while she was at work. And you're absolutely right. By the end of my journey with this book, uh-huh. I feel like maybe this is Coco's book. You know, I mean, I think every, I think it's definitely the book for all of the women, but the the driving force behind it might just be Coco. I mean, she's writing her and writing her story 
was very emotional for me. I was so invested in her um, because I felt like she's a kid. And even though she doesn't exist, <laughs> you know, it's hard as a fiction writer to remind yourself, these are not real people. I felt like I, I had to be careful with her, but I also had to serve the story. And I also had to bring her on a journey. I just want to talk about structuring this and, okay. and the and the work that goes into figuring out how you need to step forward, step back, step forward, mm-hmm. step back. There's, I'm sure there's some sort of musical metaphor that I am missing completely because mm-hmm. guess what? Hi, I'm the tone deaf one in my family. So. <laughs> I am actually, well, we're all tone deaf um, in my family. It's, it's a sad thing. We love music. None of us right. can sing or play very well. The idea was always to let each woman kind of step forward and tell her story, tell her story of circus and that relationship and tell her story of whatever is going on in her life as he's passing through. And that was one of the motivations for writing it. When I was involved with the musician that I was involved with, and when I talk to friends who are involved with people who they're having similar relationships with, there's always that feeling. Don't you understand who I am? Don't you see the fullness of me? Don't you see? I've got things going on too. I've got concerns. I've got worries. I've got a job. I've got goals. I've got problems. And so I wanted to reflect that because going back to what we were talking about earlier, I feel like very often when we have stories about womanizing characters, whether we piece those stories out so we see each woman individually um, or not, they don't really have stories. They don't really have lives except as they relate to that main character. So it was always going to be each woman steps forward, each woman gets a chapter. As the story evolved, I realized two things. One, I really needed to to cohere, you know, more solidly. And that means really sort of, you know, threading everyone in a way through everyone else's story, some more than others, but for sure, making sure that that's happening. And then also recognizing how, well, how would this play out? In some ways, I knew that the focus was on the women, but one of the cords tying it all together was Circus's evolution, right? So in the first chapter, we find out, he finds out Maggie is pregnant. His most beloved, you can decide, dear reader, how much you think he uh, cares for her or loves her. But it's pretty clear that she's kind of closest to his heart, tells him that she's pregnant. And then, as I said, he leaves and he's going to think about it, right? He's going to make a decision about what he's going to do, who he is in the context of this new situation. We also have, which we haven't really talked about, he's just turned 40. Um, he feels like his time, the window is closing if he's going to make it big. He lives in Boston. New York is sort of, he's got an opportunity in New York that's happening right around his 40th birthday. So not only do we have his resistance to commitment, we also have what he sees as the clock ticking on his dream. And this isn't really working with a new baby, right? And so his journey, right, toward the decision he's going to make um, around all of these factors was what I used as the cord. So when I decided where to place which woman, part of it was 
where is each individual woman in her romantic life, her life story, and how does it relate and connect to where Circus is? So where can I plug her in on his sort of timeline? And again, not prioritizing his story or his timeline, but they have to sort of work in tandem, right? He's evolving and their evolution sort of pops in, right? So there's a little, there's a cord connecting their journeys. So that's how the structure kind of came together. So maybe it isn't as magical as I thought. That's that's fairly concrete, hopefully. It is concrete, but also I'm just thinking, as you were talking, I was thinking about Peach, the bartender. Mm-hmm. Yes. And sort of where she goes from, oh, wow, stars in her eyes to, mm-hmm. huh. And I'm going to let people discover where she goes, but it's yes. really, she's a pretty cool cat. I'm, I'm quite yeah. happy I got to meet her. And, and there's a little bit of comic relief, obviously, in what happens with her as well. But she does ultimately say, you know, I'm going to make a choice. Yes. And I really respect that. And, you know, we've all sort of met people at different points in our lives where they come swanning in and swanning out. And maybe sometimes we were that person for someone else. Sure. Of course. Yes. I'm really happy with the response Mm -hmm. people have to Peach because I'm going to be sort of honest about where she came from. I was watching a TV show. Maybe I won't mention it. Uh, There was a character who was, quote, the bimbo, right? We've seen the bimbo everywhere in our culture, everywhere. And she comes in and she's wearing skimpy clothes and she's presented as not very intelligent and therefore disposable. And I was angry when I saw that character and I wanted to put her into this book, but I didn't want to suggest, no, actually she's brilliant. And that's why she deserves respect. I wanted to say, no, She's very pretty. She definitely fits the standards of, you know, what we in this in this culture consider beautiful and sexy. Right. She doesn't necessarily have, you know, highfalutin goals, mm-hmm. but she definitely still deserves respect. She's definitely still a human being. She definitely has a story and a voice and she should have agency. I wanted to give her some humanity because I I got pretty sick of seeing her being robbed of it consistently. And I mean, honestly, as much as you and I roll our eyes at the word Mm -hmm. bimbo, I mean, that's just one more example of how culturally we have all of these words to describe women and not so many for men. Right. And they're always degrading. Right. And, and, And that's one of the pieces with, I mean, now that we're talking about it, I'm realizing there are two pieces with with Peach, right? She's mm-hmm. the bimbo and she's also the slut, right? Right. Because she likes to have sex. She likes, mm-hmm. you know, um, being with men. So not only is she, because of her physicality, disposable, right. which is ridiculous, right? You desire it, yet mm-hmm. what, what's wrong with you that you, you desire it so much, yet you you want to discard it so easily. But because she inhabits her body, right? She's not using it. To appeal to men, she likes being in her body. And it's tragic that women, when women enjoy being in their bodies and enjoy being sexual in their bodies, that they're sluts and they're easily discarded. And we've got lots of bad names for them. But when men do the exact same thing, we just, oh, boys, roll our eyes or think it's cute and sexy and it's a little inevitable. Yeah. yeah. It's a little notch. It's a little check mark. Right. And the other thing is, too, I mean, Women, you know, we're so emotional. Oh, that's, yes. you know, right, right, 
And the thing is, your women are emotional because they understand what they're putting themselves through. Yes. And some would like to stop and some would like him to change his behavior. But the reality is that they are much more connected to how they're feeling or how they would prefer to be feeling Mm -hmm. than he is. I mean, let's face it, Circus drinks a little too much. He's a little messy. His career's not quite going the way he thought it was going to because here he is, I'm doing the thing I love. And you know, the stories we tell ourselves about where we're supposed to be at certain points in our lives. Yes. And, you know, here's Maggie with a big career and she's like, you know, I, I'm pregnant. Mm -hmm. Wasn't planning it, but here Mm -hmm. we go. I'm pregnant. Right. And that changes her narrative a little bit. And, and Pia though, comes into the world with this narrative that's kind of pre-installed. I mean, we, we, we meet her mother. Yes. (laughs) You know, she ends up making some different choices. Like we meet all of these women. Mm Mm-hmm. And they all are just figuring it out. And it takes a lot of gumption to figure out what's going on and admit that stuff isn't right or to have a messy life. I mean, there's so many pieces. Yes. And Circus, I think he's picking up a little bit. I mean, I want to give the guy some credit. He does Mm -hmm. have a a very genuine evolution. Yes. In this novel. So let's, you know, I'll give him his props. But yes. Wow, dude's messy. <laughs> yeah, and you know it's, dude it's is inter- messy. He, he's very messy, and for sure he doesn't realize that. You know, the mm-hmm. older I get, it, it's interesting. I mean, I'm still thinking about relationships. I'm still right. evolving in my understanding of relationships. I feel like I regularly talk to people about their relationships, whether mm-hmm. they're ma- whether they're married or single. Or right. um, I have a, a friend, a male friend, who recently ended a relationship and sort of talked about how he feels that he feels bad and he feels guilty. Mm-hmm. And I said, want to say to him, I might actually say it. It'd be really great if you express that to her. I bet you she'd like to hear that. Yeah. You know, that doesn't necessarily mean you have to stay in the relationship, but knowing it means something is huge, you know? And I think that Circus, and, and Maggie says this to him at some point, you know, he does have trauma. Um, he does have reasons right. why he's behaving the way he he is not only with women but in his career there are reasons he's not successful um at this point right or successful as much as he would like to be and it's not only because of talent right and so i think that a tragedy for a character like circus is that he has no self-awareness and doesn't realize that he doesn't have self-awareness yet there's something in there, right? There is a, a person in there. There is a sensitive soul in there who feels something. It's in his gut. It's in his mind. He hears what he says to people and feels something inside of him kind of pushing back. But he's not strong enough. He's not wise enough. He's not caring, you could argue, enough to really recognize that. But part of my goal, as I said, and allow and giving these these women an, an opportunity to liberate themselves or to at least reconfigure their relationships to him, reconfigure their relationships to love and relationships. I also wanted to give him an opportunity to grow up, to meet his responsibilities, to face life, right? To face who he is. And I think that's what all of these characters need to do. And all of us need to do in our lives, really face the reality of who we are and what we want and what we're getting and what we're not getting and make choices 
And speaking of choices, can we talk about some of the literary influences that you've had over the years? Because, I mean, you also teach, and I, I yes. want to come to that as well. But who helped make you the person who wrote Sweet, Soft, Plenty Rhythm? I feel like my answers are going to be, no one, no one is going to be surprised. But obviously, I love Toni Morrison. She's my favorite writer and probably will always be. Mm -hmm. um, I love the way that she uses language. I love her ability. I, I actually tried to study it when I um, was a student of how she tells these incredibly compelling stories that have forceful momentum yet she's it also feels like she's lingering right there's mm -hmm. there's a, an intense amount of movement yet at the same time it, it feels very sort of soft and like you're you're yeah. lulled along um so she's definitely been an influence and then there are other women writers marguerite dura was somebody that i came to very early um i even tried to write like i'm gonna write an 80 page you know novella that's very sparse and there's like one sentence is you know I'm not good at that. I, 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 I guess I'm a, a blabbermouth on the page. There's also a woman named Annie Ernaux. I like uh, European literature as well. Yep. So those two, you know, sort of really getting into the the dirt of mm -hmm. being a woman relating to men, especially when it's challenging. Um, so so they were were influences. Uh, Tony K. Bambara is actually somebody who I really love. Part of it is something that I can't figure out that she's able to do um, that I sort of tried to do in some of these chapters where, you know, you're reading a story and you're really compelled by the character and the, and what's happening to them. And then there's just the, something magic that happens at the end that just flows over you and you have this understanding and you're not even sure what of, but your life has been changed. Yeah. That's what she I know exactly what me. you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, and I don't know what it is. I don't think I will ever figure it out. Gorilla, but... my love. Yes. Gorilla, my love. Exactly, yeah, exactly. You also teach, though. I do. And you've taught for a really long time. And I'm wondering mm -hmm. what you've learned from your students, because you tend to work with the, the younger set. So, um, yeah, so I, I'm teaching. I have taught um, adults. I mean, college students right, are adults, right, right. but like professionals who've done right. other things with their lives and come back to, to fiction. But for the mm -hmm. most part, yes, I've taught students uh, or college students? That's a really good question and one that I haven't really thought mm -hmm. about. So I'm going to get into it and hope that the an answer comes. Okay. Um, because what I find myself saying to them a lot is, you know, write what you know, right? That yeah, old yeah. chestnut. Right, right. And I think that we all, anybody who writes, especially students who are not actually English majors or intending to write. A lot of the students that I have taught are taking a class because they have to. They're looking mm -hmm. for a credit, right? They don't necessarily want to be writers. Um, every so often there's, well, I, I shouldn't say it that way. There's always a handful of students like, no, I actually really like to read. I really like right. poetry and I, I'd like to write. I might even be an English minor. Mm -hmm. But anyway, what I find myself saying to them a lot is it's natural to write about yourself because it's the most interesting subject to you, right? It's your experiences. But I think what's more interesting is to, and, and challenging, is to try to divorce yourself from those experiences and your place in them, because probably that's where the really juicy stuff is. 
And I think that's true not only for for writing or people who are interested in writing, but I feel like even when you're not writing about yourself, there's something to that you've really got to look for. And and I, what I really appreciate about this conversation I'm having with you is how much you're talking about the intensity, right? How dire, right? Um, things get for these women, right? And to me how necessary that is when you write. That doesn't mean that it's always life or death, right? Peach, for example, is not in a life or death situation at all. Her journey, um, even though it's exciting, as you said, hopefully funny, um, her chapter, I mean, she shows up several times, but in her chapter that's mostly devoted to her, um, there are lots of other characters and lots of other things happening. And her evolution is really internal, right? But mm-hmm. it is incredibly important and the stakes are high. You know, that's kind of writing 101, writing workshop 101. But part of it to me is, is yeah, really find what it is in the gut of your characters um, that needs evolution, that needs to be stirred, that really is going to be dynamic once you poke at it. And then just keep poking at it. It sounds cruel to say that it's fun, but it's it's a really wonderful creative experience. And you help your characters, hopefully, right? You're giving them an opportunity to evolve. And hopefully for the reader, right, to mm-hmm. really, at the very least, be entertained and engage fully and hopefully, you know, evolve in some way themselves. Oh, you definitely do that. Oh, this, okay. <laughs> Good. Yes, this happens. <laughs> All Good. of that happens in Sweet Soft Plenty Rhythm. What were you listening to while you worked on these pieces? Ultimately became this beautiful book, but... Be yes. Honest. So we're going to put together a Spotify list. Oh, so good. Look good, for good, that. Good. So the answer is all over the place, and yep. I will try to condense it. The first is just kind of what I listen to when I write. I usually listen to music. As you noted, I used to teach at the Berkeley College of Music yeah. and my students told me what kind of music I like because <laughs> I didn't that's know. Funny. Yeah, right. I would give them the names of bands like, oh, that's down tempo. Mm-hmm. So I often listen to down tempo, acid jazz, that kind of thing. And and I imagine this is true for, for most writers or maybe not, I don't know. My characters have sounds. They sound like something to me. Yeah. Circus has a sound. Pia has a sound. And so I would, there would be songs that would come up that sounded like circus, that sounded Mm -hmm. like Maggie in that sort of down tempo, Mm -hmm. chill out acid jazz. Then there were songs that I knew they liked. And these are the things that are going to show up on the Spotify list that we're putting together. So for example, Pia, and I mentioned this in the book, she likes um, the cranberries and Jewel. And those sort of 90s, (laughs) you know, soft, that's the music that she likes. And so I would listen to that when I was working with her. Josephine likes Beyonce. That's probably not a shock when you get to her chapter. And so sometimes I had playlists or at least just a few songs, sometimes just Mm -hmm. one song that really put me into the spirit of that character. And then, of course, I listened to jazz. There are musicians that I think are Circus's favorite, people like Lee Morgan and all of the brass, you know, players. Um, but then there were also just, I really could could see him 
and it's kind of funny because right he's he's a man but he was the character that became the easiest to write the clearest to see i always knew what he was going to say a character mm-hmm. would say something i knew exactly what he'd respond but i would have to think about what the other mm-hmm. character would say back but so i could always see him on the stage and so mm-hmm. i would often um play records you know songs that i could imagine him playing on a stage in boston the usual, right? Miles Davis and, mm-hmm, and Mingus mm-hmm. and Thelonious Monk and um, and for anybody who's who's interested in jazz or gets curious about it, because that's what one of the things that's been really interesting is is mm-hmm. uh, people are very surprised, like why does he play jazz? <laughs> why why jazz? And they often say, oh, when does it take place? So I think you know everybody thinks, oh, jazz that was music in the twenties or the fifties, and for anybody who's interested. The greats are a great place to start. And I mm-hmm. listen to a lot of them because those are the things you're going to hear when right. you're in those those dingy clubs in Boston listening to jazz. Which I have done. <laughs> yes, me too. Me I too. Done. Yeah. I it's been a minute. Them. Yeah. It's, it's been a minute, but I've done it. What's next for you? I am working on another book. Yeah. Um, it is, uh, it's right now it only has two points of view and mm-hmm. they are women. Uh, and it is a love triangle. Okay. So uh, that's what I can tell you so far. Okay. There's a lot more to it. I'm, I'm hoping that I am uh, layering it in the ways that I did with Sweet Soft, Plenty Rhythm, yeah. um, thematically. Uh, mm-hmm. I had a, uh, a mentor when I was doing my program who said, you're a little weird in a good way. <laughs> and And I kind of like that. I think, okay. you know, I think that, Everything that happens in Sweet Soft Plenty Rhythm is, you know, believable, is relatable, but there's, I think there's a little twistiness, right, to mm-hmm. a lot of those stories. Mm-hmm. And I'm finding, wow, maybe, maybe I do that without even thinking about it. So, so th- that's going to be similar here. So, totally different types of characters, totally mm-hmm. different world. This takes place in Los Angeles. These are very, very different types of people. Mm-hmm. Um, love triangle, uh, focusing on the two women involved in it. And they're not going to make the best choices either. I just love it when people don't make great choices. That's when we get great books. Yes. (laughs) Hopefully. Yes. Yes. (laughs) I am so happy to hear about that new project. But, you know, before I let you go, because we are, I knew this was Mm going to fly. I knew this was just I know. I'm just noticing. I think Coco's okay. I'm pretty sure Circus is in a better place. Maggie is just fine. Maggie and Odessa are fine. And some other characters are fine too. Don't misunderstand me. But Mm. do we think Pia is okay now? I actually know where everybody is right now. Okay. Yeah. I know how all of their lives are. Okay. And it depends on how you define okay. Okay. Um, But I will say that she made the choice that was right for her. Yeah, that's I, that's I, what I'll say. Yeah, I absolutely. I absolutely get that. Yeah, I and I get that. yeah, I think that's true for all of the characters. Um, some choices are are easier to mm-hmm. stomach than others, um, but I think that she's in a place where she needs to be. I think she's okay. Yeah, yeah I think she's okay. Good. 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 Yeah. <laughs> Laura Worrell, thank you so much. Sweet Song Plenty Rhythm is out now. And I'm so excited for people to meet these folks. Thank you again. This was so much fun. So much fun. Thank you so much. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another TBR Top Off, where we recommend books for you to pick up when you come in for your copy of Sweet Soft 
plenty rhythm. I'm Becky. And I'm Mark. And we are coming to you from our home store in Cincinnati, Ohio. And if it's all right with you, I'm going to get started. I would love it. Thank you, because the book that I have is such a good one. It is David Mitchell's newest, Utopia Avenue. Yes! This is such a great book. Think of, like, late 60s London music scene. So, sex, drugs, rock and roll. But then you've got the civil rights movement, hippies, Vietnam, revolution, uh, psychedelia. Uh, everything is this this incredible backdrop that we get to, we are introduced to at, uh, Utopia Avenue. Uh, that's the name of the band. And we get to uh, meet the group. And, um, and what's great about this book is that it tells their story from each of their viewpoints. So it's a revolving, uh, each chapter is revolving on who's talking and you get to get their viewpoint on things. So you get to meet Elf who is this folk singer, uh, keyboardist. She is dealing with the hardness of being a woman in a very male-dominated world at the time. Uh, You get to meet Jasper, virtuoso lead guitarist who is struggling with a lot of mental issues. Um, You meet Dean, who is this blues bassist who is so wonderful, but is just plagued with bad luck. And then you meet Griff, who is the drummer. And like I said, you get to hear all of their viewpoints and you get to see them from their very humble beginnings, their formation, to then this meteoric rise to the cusp of stardom and then the end. And it, it the journey that David Mitchell takes you on is fantastic. What's wonderful is that you're reading and you forget that this is a fictional book. And because he also peppers in all of these great cameos by musicians of that time, it's it's fantastic. So um, if you are a fan of David Mitchell, also, there is some candy there. So, um, yeah, for the Mitchell verse, yeah, you're going to enjoy this. So even without that, though, it's a fantastic book. I highly recommend it. Utopia Avenue by David Mitchell. Mark, what do you have for us? Oh, I could talk about that book for eons. <laughs> so I love you know I love David Mitchell. I do. Such a great book. <laughs> I also picked a great book mm-hmm. uh, by a fantastic author who I think we both love very much. And it is Nick Hornby's Juliet Naked. Oh, yes. good one. Such a good one. So this is a book about lost time. Um you know, maybe that perceived lost time that you think you've wasted and what you do when you're finally fed up and ready for something new. So we're following Annie, our main character, and she's she's done. She's over it. She's spent the last 15 years with the very safe, semi-dependable, mostly boring, kind of obnoxious Duncan. And she's ready for something different she she needs a change and she feels like she just did not spend her time in the way that she intended and really just felt like she didn't get a say in in what she truly wanted duncan also has this semi-obnoxious a little bit unsettling obsession with this reclusive rocker who is very bob dylan-esque his name is tucker crow And he loves him some Tucker Crow. But when Annie listens to Tucker Crow's newest album, uh, she decides to write a review and post it publicly. It is a little harsh, maybe 
just shy of scathing. Um, and is this a way for her to act out in defiance? Perhaps. Uh, but she posts it and Tucker replies. Turns out he is also very disenchanted uh, with his career, with his life. And the two of them start up a correspondence that really upends their existences. And it's fantastic. Uh, Mr. Hornby is really known for great clever writing entrenched in the music scene. And this is no exception. I always recommend him. And I think Juliet Naked is a great place to start. So check it out. Oh my goodness. Good choice. Good choices, both of us. I agree. Honestly, both of these authors are fantastic. So just dive into both of their their works. They're amazing. Yep. Um, So, well, that's all that we have for you today. Uh, When you have a chance, please rate and subscribe so that you never miss fun episodes like this. Yes. Um, You can always follow Barnes & Noble at Barnes & Noble. Pretty simple. (laughs) Um, You can follow us at our home store at BN Westchester. Mm -hmm. I'm Becky. And I'm Mark. And um, we just hope that you enjoy these books and add them to your TBR. All right. Happy reading. Bye, everybody. (laughs) Bye. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.